Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. I hope you are enjoying your Immerse groups. This opportunity we take, I just want to explain, for those of you who may be new to us, we take about eight weeks out of every year to just slow ourselves down and immerse ourselves. Do you know what that means to be immersed? That means to be completely saturated, right? To be completely saturated in the Word of God. And we do that just a section of the Bible at a time. The goal is that as a community, we will have read the entire Bible together over the next several years. And so for the last couple of years, we've been going through that. There are wonderful resources, and I just want to mention, there's a downloadable quick start guide. We have some of these copies also out in the, out in the lobby. Uh, but you can download any of these at shorelinecc.com immerse. And there are all kinds of resources. You can listen to the Word of God. You can read the Word of God. You can learn more and have all kinds of resources. You can join a group. You can form a group to just talk about four basic questions that we um, encounter. So it's an opportunity for you to think deeply about the Word of God. And there are four questions that we ask as conversation starters. What stood out to you this week? I mean, this is as easy as it gets for a group, right? What stood out to you this week? Was there anything confusing or troubling? And there's a lot of things we have to talk about, especially in these passages of scriptures. There are a lot of unfamiliar concepts, but there are answers to everything that we need in the Word of God. And did anything make you think differently about God? Did anything make you think differently about God? And how might this change the way that we live today? Very important questions. That's the structure of every immerse group, those four basic questions. And I just also want to mention, too, we have Bibles. Um, it has been a great joy over these last few weeks to give individuals their very first Bible. And if you are here today and you don't have a Bible, we have a Bible that's free. And if you are um, new to Shoreline or maybe you're talking to somebody about Jesus and they have a lot of questions, pick one of these up. These are free. We want to, I hope we just keep running out of Bibles all of the time. We take this time to immerse ourselves deeply in the story of God. And this is just a remarkable book. 66 books are included in this one book, written over 1,500 years, for more than 40 authors from various cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, three different continents. I mean, and yet one cohesive book, one cohesive story that weaves together the story of God, the history, our history, God's story, as they come together in this beautiful book that withstands literary criticism, historical criticism, archaeologically validated. You can't find another book like it. It's absolutely remarkable. And it's remarkable because it is the story of God. These are his words to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed. All of it is God-breathed, even the difficult portions. The, the truth-telling portions of Scripture are God-breathed, and they're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here's the reason why. So that the servant of God, that's you and me, so that we are all thoroughly equipped for every good work. For every good work. Second, Tim, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. And that's a good thing because as humans, we, were, we are flawed. And all of the people that you read about in the Bible are also flawed. 
But none of these words came about because of human will and because of their perfection and because they had it all together. But instead, prophets, though human, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we say the the word of God is God-breathed. Literally, that word inspired means it's God-breathed. Just like he breathed into man and man came to life. When the word of God is planted in each of us, just like at creation, we come to life. And that's how we grow. So this is a wonderful thing. But do remember, as we read these accounts in our immersed readings, these stories are interwoven into God's story, the good and the bad, real people, real life, real stories. And you and I are each a part of this, not only the generations after us, the generations before us, and us today. We are all woven into this grand timeline of story. Here's an important scripture, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, a sword that has edges on both sides. It can cut both ways. It has precision. The swords were not these unwieldy, long things. The sword we're talking about, the sword of the Spirit, is something for quick, agile movement, precise movement. Dividing, it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In verse 13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Bible tells the truth about what actually happened and that same spirit before whom everything is uncovered and laid bare and that we're going to give an account, that same spirit searches our hearts, knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So today, as we look at this next passage of scripture, our purpose today is to lay a groundwork that will help us understand the readings that are coming up over these next several weeks. We are in the book of Samuel. Um, originally, the first and second Samuel was not two separate books. It was one book of Samuel uh, divided into two separate sections because they couldn't bind all of Samuel into one book in the previous. That's how we ended up with first and second Samuel. But the book of Samuel tells a story about how kings are coming to power and how God's people exchanged uh, a theocracy a rule under God for a monarchy. And they said, you know what, God, we know that you had this plan for us, but instead we're going to choose another direction. Thank you very much. And we're going to move uh, beyond. So we're going to look at plans A, B, and C today. God's plan A from original creation that we exchanged for plan B because we thought we knew a better way. But here's what I want you to understand as we head into communion at the end of our time. God always always has a redemptive plan C, a contingency plan in play. God is never without his options. He never was without his options. He planned for our failures from the beginning of time, and that is very good news for you and me today. God is, God's plan is always designed to get us back to his plan A living. And so today as we look at plan A, God's original plan A, we see that God's plan from the beginning, our good creator God planned that he would not only create life, but he would bring order to chaos. Anybody ever feel like you just are living in not only chaotic times, but maybe you're walking through a chaotic situation in your family. Maybe you've walked through um, levels of addiction, maybe family of origin, lots of different things that can bring and introduce chaos into our lives. God comes into each of our lives to bring chaos into order. And that's what he did from the beginning. And Adam and Eve enjoyed this beauty and order in the context of relationship with God. That was his good design for each of us, that each of us would live in relationship with him. 
Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, and his intention was that he would be everything they needed. He would provide everything they need. He would give them leadership. He would be their companion and their friend. And yet, despite God's goodness and love, despite all he had given them, from the very opening pages of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, he gives them this command. He said, you can eat from anything in this garden. Anything is yours. Everything I've created is good. It's for your benefit, except for this one tree. Don't touch that one tree in the garden. And he introduced a boundary, a boundary. Don't eat from this one, anything else but not this one. And it's at that moment that Satan planted a seed of doubt. And the seed of doubt sounds like this then, and it sounds like that for us today. Did God really say that? Did he really say you couldn't do that? Did he really say you shouldn't? Think that, go there, maybe this relationship is not good for you. Does it make things evil? But maybe for you, there's a boundary that God introduces and the temptation, that seed of doubt comes in to say, but did God really say that? Which led to the temptation, and here's the temptation, then and for us, can I really trust God? Can I trust God? That seed of doubt not only produces gardens of doubt for them, but it also produces gardens of doubt for us. Those seeds grow up and bear fruit for each of us. Can we trust God? God created our world with limits. 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, 168 hours in a week. He planted, uh, he planted things, he created things with boundaries and borders between earth and sky, between the land and the water. He said, you know, this far you can go and no further water. And we have the boundaries of land. Our world was created with boundaries in place. And they're for our benefit and our blessing and for our mutual enjoyment. Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6 says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. When God institutes a boundary... It's because he wants to be everything. You alone are my portion and my cup. You are the one who makes my lot secure. I can trust you with what you give me within that boundary of protection. The boundary lines he chooses for each of us are good. They're pleasant. And they let us enjoy the inheritance that God gives us. We live in the abundance of God's goodness. So which boundaries, which boundaries are you tempted to move? There's a temptation for each of us. Do you know the boundaries that God has given you physically, mentally, relationally, emotionally, spiritually? What are the boundaries? Because within those boundaries, there is blessing. There is blessing in those limitations. But the temptation, can I trust God? We're all tempted to move the boundaries when we aren't really sure we're going to be taken care of. When we're not sure if things are going to happen in a timely manner. When we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Because God appears to be moving a little too slowly. We're all tempted to move those boundaries. This is what we see play out in our spiritual family. In the readings. You see this play out time and a time over generation after generation. This moving in our spiritual family tree and also in ours. God gave instructions to the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 19.14, it said, Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone. Set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land your God has given you to possess. Over and over throughout Scripture, in Proverbs, Deuteronomy, Job, Hosea, many times throughout the Old Testament, God gave them specific instructions and warnings not to move those boundary stones because there's blessing within that. God knows that. So does Satan. 
Satan knows where your inheritance lies and he will do everything he can to interject a seed of doubt in there to say, can you really trust that what God says is good for you? And he will do this. But here's the deal. We don't have the freedom to encroach, literally to trespass, to poach in an area that is not, to steal, to intrude, to disturb. What God says is off limits to each of us is off limits. Whether we understand it or not, whether we agree with it or not, if God institutes that boundary, we can trust it's for our protection. Sometimes others intrude in our space, others poach on the territory that God's given us, and sometimes we do that for other people. And it leads to all kinds of destruction. So here's the question I want us to think about. In those areas of boundaries, when you're tempted to step over those boundaries, when we move those boundary lines, we are creating a dependence on something that does not belong to us, that is not ours to own, that's not part of our inheritance. So when we're moving those boundary lines and we're developing those dependencies on things other than God, other than trusting God, the question is, am I developing a deeper dependence on God Or am I developing a dependence on the things that do not belong to me? Am I taking my life in my own hands or do I trust God? That's the question before us. That's plan A, but we exchange plan A for plan B. God intended to be everything. We exchanged that and said we'll take matters in our own hands. Last year we started in beginnings. The first five books of the Bible were continuing with the next seven in this series. But in Genesis, we see from the very beginning of Scripture, Adam and Eve exchanged plan A for plan B. It forfeited the garden. Abraham gets back on track. And thank God they tell us the whole story here. Because Abraham, was, he was not an honest person. He was a fearful man. He had a lot of failures. But God still promised him an inheritance. Isaac, his son, had the same issue did the same thing his father had done in another generation. Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver, God intercepted into his life at a critical point, wrestles with him, and then changes his name and says, you're not going to be called a deceiver anymore. And each of us come to that place of wrestling with God. When when we're going our own way and we need God to step into those places, he will bring us to that point of decision, to a point of choice where we will either choose plan A or we're going to choose plan B, but thank God he always gives us an opportunity to get back. Some chose that, others did not in our readings. So as we pick up in this kingdoms and we're learning through the book of Joshua, through the book of Kings, do we see that they learn from their mistakes? No. (laughs) Actually, it gets way worse and more complicated because unfortunately, human nature is still human nature and people in generations don't improve easily, not without a completely surrendered life. And so in our reading timeline, God uses judges and prophets to be the voice of God to a generation that was not seeking his ways, to come in and issue them a warning and an opportunity to get back on track. And it's in our readings last week and this week that we're introduced to Samuel the prophet and the beginnings of Israel's kingdom, the time when kings began to rule. And despite the words of God to Moses, the judges or the prophets, people drifted time and time again. And last week we talked about how Saul was chosen as the very first king. Listen to Samuel's warning to the people before the This moment when he said, wait a minute, you have an opportunity to stop what you're doing, 
make a better choice and listen to what happens. First Samuel 8, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. And notice this, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. They've rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing to you. And he warns them, if you, if you choose a king, it's not going to go well for you. But verse 18 says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, from your choice. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the people refused to listen. They said, no, we want a king. We want a king. God had promised to fight their battles for them. They didn't have any reason to fear his provision, that there wouldn't be enough. He had provided for them time and time again, and yet they chose plan B. And then Saul, their leader, also takes matters into his own hands with the sacrifices we learned about last week when he's supposed to go out against the Philistines and he sacrifices when that should have been Samuel's job. That, that ignored the instructions, and God rejects Saul as the king. But God's story doesn't end there. There's always something that God is doing and another opportunity. And time after time after time, it doesn't matter how many times we get it wrong, how many failures we have stacked up behind our name, whatever's credited against us, God will always give you an opportunity to get back on track. God will always give us an opportunity to get back on track. The kingdom leadership falls to a shepherd boy named David, and the rest of his life is is laid out throughout the book of Samuel as well as in Chronicles. It's well-documented. He was young and unnoticed when he was anointed. He was forgotten. He was in a backfield somewhere. His father didn't even call him when Samuel visited his family to anoint and choose the next king. And as Samuel went down the line of his brothers and said, nope, nope, and God said, that's not him, that's not the next king, that's not the next king. And Samuel asked, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? And we're like, well, there's, you know, the little guy back out here in the pasture, you know, taking care of the sheep. And, you know, and in the meantime, what was not seen by others but known by God is he was killing lions and bears. He was in preparation in these hidden places, and his heart was oriented toward God. He wanted to please God. And so 1 Samuel 16, the Lord says to Samuel, don't consider Saul's appearance or his height because I've rejected him. Saul looked good. He looked like the perfect leader. He had the stature, the looks, the charisma. He had everything that you would think would be a part of a great leader. But the Lord said, I've rejected him because the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearances, but I look at the heart. I look at the heart. Not only does God notice it, but Saul also notices David's success over time and it's kind of one of those situations where you keep your, en- your friends close but your enemies closer. Saul had this love-hate relationship with David, and the more popular David became because of God's favor, the more jealous Saul grew until the time of his end when he, his sons are killed by the same Philistines, and then Saul can't bear the rejection and the humiliation, and he falls on his own sword, taking his own life. That's how that ends. Saul had the opportunity, he rejected. Things don't go well when we choose plan B. But remember Hebrews 4.13 that we read in the beginning, nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare. David was a man after God's own heart. He was not a perfect man. You're going to read all about it. Crazy stuff in David's line. But the thing about David that made him qualified for the leadership position God called him to was that he was quick to repent. He was quick 
to acknowledge his failures. And although he was flawed, here's what we find. God redeems broken things. God redeems broken things, and David is no exception. You are no exception. God redeems broken things. So even if your family tree gets off track, here's the good news. God always has a redemptive plan C in play. This is the contingency plan that you and I can be very, very grateful for. He already knew we were going to mess up and that we would need a way back. So no matter how badly off track the storyline goes, there is a way out of our mess and a way to get back on track. And here's a key verse as we go into this last section of what we're looking at today to set up your readings. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are unfaithful... God remains faithful because he cannot deny who he is. We sang about it earlier. Faithful you are. Faithful forever you will be. That's why all of his promises to us are yes and amen. We can take them to the bank. We can trust God in those places. There is a way to get back on track because it's not dependent on our faithfulness. It's dependent on God's action toward us. So today, we're going to lay some groundwork for um, this next thing. When the kingdom rises, it falls, it divides, it subdivides again. Kings come to power, good kings, bad kings. Lots of things happen in that, and things are going to get crazy. But we all have access, equal access, to second chances. And here's why. God is faithful, even if we aren't. So I want to just introduce a word that you're going to see in here, and it's, it's been in the readings for the last couple of years, but it's really important concept. In fact, it's probably one of the most important theological concepts in the Bible, and it's not something we talk about a lot, and it's this word covenant, covenant. It's probably one of the most important concepts for you to know. It's not a word we use a lot today, except if you belong to an HOA, you have a covenant, which doesn't seem like a really big deal, but this word in the Bible is actually a really, really big deal, It was very familiar. This concept of covenants was very familiar in that ancient Near East and and Israeli culture. It was something that that group of people knew and understood well. There were legal covenants, political covenants, personal covenants. Some were conditional, some were unconditional. There were conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. And we're talking about that today because the entire story of redemption, God's story, his theme throughout history rests on the framework of this concept. It's like the skeleton that everything else is hanging on. It's the backbone of God's relationship with us. And if you would like to dive a little deeper, I recommend checking out the Bible Project online. Uh, It has some great resources. And I'm going to just quote a little excerpt from one of those resources to define what a covenant is. A covenant is a chosen relationship chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and they work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments, but they differ from a contract in that they are relational. They're personal. It says more than just a contract. You do this, I do this, and are the terms of the contract fulfilled? Way more than that. This was relationship. This was person to person, nation to nation, God to man. Think of marriage. 
In love, a husband and wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. They then work as partners toward this common goal, like building a career, raising children together. That's a covenant, not a contract. You do this, you do that, this impersonality, but a covenant where two of us come together and say, you know what, for your good, for my good, for the good of the generations to come behind us, we're going to work together for the rest of our lives for this common goal of raising a godly family, of living our lives surrendered to him. Those were the covenants, the oaths that we made. And you know what, we gave each other a ring as a sign of the, of the promise and the commitment. Oaths were accompanied by those signs. And there were five primary covenants throughout Scripture, from the opening pages of Scripture all the way to the time of Jesus who fulfilled the covenants and introduced a new covenant, which we're going to celebrate. There were five main covenants in the Bible that relate to us. The covenant that God made with Noah, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the one he made with Moses, the one he made with David in your readings this time as well as the new covenant, because God's redemptive plan C is interwoven into all of these timelines, and you're going to see it. We're going to take a very, very quick look at this. The covenant that God makes with Noah comes about as the world is destroyed by a flood. Things had gotten so off track that God just said, I regret that I ever started this. I regret that I ever made man because they were so evil, and the days were so evil, and so it was, it was kind of a clean slate start over. But God preserved one man and his family, Noah, and God makes a covenant with Noah that no matter how evil the world gets afterwards, he will never destroy the world again with a flood. Until the time of the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be another wholesale destruction of the world in that same way. And he reaffirms his creation and the mandate he gave to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to rule over the earth. And this was an unconditional covenant. That, In, in other words, no matter how bad it gets... Because God is faithful, because he instituted the covenant, we can, we can trust it. And this was God's action toward man. And the sign of that, as we all know, it was the sign of the rainbow. Whenever you see the rainbow in the sky, that's a reminder that God will never again destroy the earth. Up until that time, there was not rain. It says that there were springs that came up from the earth to water the earth. And until the time of Noah, there was nothing like it. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. The second, command, the second covenant was the covenant that God makes with Abraham. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God enters into covenant with Abraham, promising redemption through a generational heir. Now, the only issue with this, the only problem was Abraham was barren. His wife was barren. They didn't have children. And now, at 90 years of age, God makes this promise that there's going to be descendants like the sands, like the stars in the sky. And he said, you can trust my word, even though you appear as good as dead in your fertility, in that ability to reproduce, you can trust that you will have descendants. And he gives a promise to Abraham of three things, offspring, land, and blessing. Offspring, land, and blessing. Through Abraham, the nation of Israel is born. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, the deceiver who wrestles with God, his name is changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. Those sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how we have the nation. The nation was started. Now, this covenant with Abraham was both conditional and unconditional. Abraham had to be willing to leave his land in obedience to God. That was the condition. 
He had to follow God wherever he led, walk blamelessly before God, and lead his family to do the same. And not only that, but he, the sign of that was circumcision. In other words, I trust you for my fertility, I trust you for my future, and it was a sign of being set apart to God. And Abraham and everyone in his household did that as part of the condition. But it was unconditional in, in that God would see that God's promises to Abraham's family and to the generations before and the generations to come would be fulfilled, despite Abraham's family, despite the grandsons and the great-grandsons and the great-great-great, all of that. It was the conditional and unconditional. The third one is the covenant that God makes with Moses. You find that in Exodus 19 through 24. When God initiates a covenant with Moses and his people, he wanted to be their king. He had delivered them out of slavery, out of oppression in Egypt. He wanted to be everything for this group of people and reestablish and really establish their identity, not only as a nation, but as God's people. God's people. He promised that he would personally dwell with them and he would show them and teach them how to move forward and how to live in a new way. And a kingdom was intended that would bring blessing to other nations. That's what God intended for the nation of Israel. This covenant with Moses was a conditional covenant of grace. A conditional covenant of grace. Israel had to obey the laws of God known as commandments. And he gave them a pattern to follow those boundaries and borders to live within. Because they hadn't been living within that. They needed to learn a new way. And there were also curses for disobedience. But here's the thing. You'll read about it in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. I encourage you to go back this week and read it. When Moses is at the end of his life and he's reinstituting and, and restating what the, those commands and the promises are. The blessings and the cursings. And he said, I'm going to give you a choice. You have a choice. We have a choice. I set before you today life and death blessings and cursings and you can almost hear the plea in his voice choose life choose life so that you and everyone after you can live so that your descendants can live choose we have a choice the sign of the mosaic covenant is sabbath what a beautiful gift that god gave us in sabbath when we can say and reaffirm weekly and even yearly and every 50 years, there were, there were periods of Sabbath in different ways. We get to reaffirm that every week when we come together for worship, we cease from our labors, and we say, God, I trust you. I trust that you can do more in my six days of labor than I can do in my seven. It's a sign of rest. It's a sign of trust when we give ourselves to God in that way. And now in our readings, we're at the fourth covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. Here we are in Samuel, and instead of enjoying God's presence and the blessings that were provided through the Mosaic Covenant, Israel again rejects God, chooses King Saul as their leader. Forget plan A, let's take plan B, and things are a mess again. Things are a mess again. David is anointed king. Saul has failed as king. Uh, he had consulted, not only took uh, matters in his own hands with the sacrifice, but Saul also consulted a medium for advice, a spiritual medium for advice. Saul's family is in shambles and he forfeits the kingdom. David is raised up and anointed as king, but David is also not a perfect man. He started well, but he committed adultery. His family is having all kinds of issues. There are lapses in judgment. His own son, Absalom, tries to take over the throne. Uh, there's a census. He, he has a census uh, for all the people to count the people, and God had not told him to do that, and there ends up being a plague that kills 70,000 people. He's not unstoppable, 
But despite his faults and failures, he still recognizes that God is the true king of Israel, and his heart moved quickly back. You see that in Psalm 51 after he commits adultery, and Samuel the prophet confronts him again with his failure, and he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't take away the, restore to me the joy of my, my salvation. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. He asks for forgiveness. He, comp- he comp- moves back quickly. That was the difference between Saul and David. Both of them were not perfect men. Both of them did not have perfect families. But the difference in one is that Saul moved further away, and the pain and the failures and all of that pushed him further away from God by his own choices. The opportunity was the same to draw near, but David drew near and pressed that pain into the heart of God. And he experienced that healing and forgiveness and restoration. So that at the end of his life, God makes a promise in Isaiah 11 that out of the broken places of his life, out of the stump of Jesse, as it refers to it in Isaiah 11, the stump, that that tree that appears to be completely cut off and nothing life-giving out of it, out of that stump, a shoot is going to come forth. And it's going to be a sign that will be an everlasting an everlasting line of David, beyond the physical line. And the, the line of David, as you follow the generations, includes the birth of Jesus, the coming Messiah. He promises that David's throne would be established forever. God would keep his promise about the kings to come from David's line, not because David was perfect, but based on God's agreement with man. This is God's action toward us, his faithfulness toward us. 2 Samuel 7 would be a wonderful place, again, to come back to in your reading this week because it outlines David's response when God establishes this covenant with him. And he just says he goes in and he sits in the presence of God. He's like, who am I that you would be so faithful to me? Just a mere man. Who am I that you would be faithful to my generations? And he begins to pour out just praise to God. 2 Samuel 7, go back and read it. There were conditional and unconditional elements to this covenant. God wanted them to be faithful to him and faithfully lead others to obey. It was unconditional because God said, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom, and that's Jesus. Jesus. And so we come to the new covenant, that fifth covenant that's so important for our understanding as we prepare to receive communion. I hope you received um, this little cup in the top of it, there's a, there's a wafer. You can begin to prepare those. This cup of the new covenant that we're going to celebrate. People continue to sin and forget the covenants, but in Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. They broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, though I was faithful to them, they broke it. But this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. No longer is it going to be written on tablets of stone. But he says, I'm going to write my my laws on their hearts and in their minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. Amen? This is an unconditional new covenant. This new covenant is the work of grace and reconciliation because we didn't have the ability 
We didn't have the ability to keep up our end of it. God knew that. God planned for that from the beginning. Refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. From the beginning of time, God knew that we would fail. And he made provision for that through the work of Jesus. Both the promises and the work of this covenant are guaranteed and purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means no matter how badly we mess up, our end of the covenant, God's faithfulness will stand. His promises are an everlasting covenant. He, he promises complete forgiveness of sins. He promises that his law would be written on our hearts and that he would put his Holy Spirit in us. In Ezekiel, it says that he will put a new spirit in us. He'll change our heart of stone to a heart of flesh, a soft, tender place, because his spirit will be living in us and empowering us to obey and follow him and will cause us to be a light to the nation. And the sign of it was his death and resurrection. The sign of it that we celebrate today is communion. This is a celebration of the new covenant that we live under, a a covenant of grace and reconciliation. There is a way to move forward because in Romans 5 it says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And in that, he restores this relationship, this partnership between God and man. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, God's action toward us, God demonstrates his love toward all of us. His own love in this way. While we were still sinners, while we were choosing the paths that lead to destruction, while we were stepping over the boundary lines. Christ died for us. God's plan was already in motion. God's plan was already in motion while we were still sinners. Before we even knew we needed it, God had already made provision. Isn't that beautiful? Our failures will not cancel out God's covenant with us because they're based on his faithfulness. That Second Timothy passage we read earlier, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. God's promises are yes and amen. He's faithful. Can God be trusted? Yes, because his promises are backed by the honor of his name. He guarantees them not based on us, but based on his action toward us in this new covenant of grace that he offers each of us today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of this covenant that gives us freedom. Lord, that gives us permission to, to have a course correction. That gives us an opportunity to get back on track when we're, when we're far off doing our own thing. Lord, we thank you that this means that our families, our our timelines, our legacies, Lord, can be changed. Lord, no matter what the story has been before, Lord, today we have a fresh start with you. Today, because of your grace, we can be reconciled with you, we can be reconciled with others, and we can experience the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of your son, Jesus. As we prepare for communion, I want to read Luke 22 when this covenant 
is instituted, and this happens at the Last Supper, when Jesus is sitting with his friends at the table, and he says, I've, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. It says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. I always love to just take it whenever I have communion and I just, I break that bread as a symbol of God's broken body, his broken body for each of us. He gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body. It's given for you. I lay my life down for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took that cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm guaranteeing it, which is poured out for you. Now, some would say, well, maybe Jesus didn't have an, op an opportunity to choose. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And you see it in Luke 22, just a few verses down in verse 39 through 43, when he goes to a garden to pray. Isn't that interesting how God begins the story in a garden? And here it is, Adam and Eve's failure in a garden is followed up in generations later in Jesus' moment of decision in a garden when he says to his disciples, pray that you won't fall into temptation. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew, knelt down, and this is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing, take it from me. Take it from me. In other words, you could do it. You've got the power to do it. You could write a different story. This could turn out a lot differently. I don't have to suffer. But the very next statement is his commitment and statement of trust in what God had laid out for him and said, this is the way. This is, this is how it's got to be done. If you're willing, take, you could take this from me. I know you could. Yet not my will. I trust you, God. Your will be done. And then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. He did all of this for us. He did all of this for us. And so today, as we receive this communion, this cup of the new covenant that we celebrate, let's take a moment to examine our hearts and just see if there's anything that we need to confess before him. All of creation is laid bare before him. He already knows it, so we may as well just be honest about it. What is it that you need to confess to God? to God and ask for his forgiveness to be quick to move back into restoration with him. Just take a moment and examine your hearts. First Corinthians says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. God, forgive us of our sins. Lord, forgive us for those places where we feel it. Forgive us for not trusting you. Lord, we want to be restored. We want our families to be restored. We want our relationships to be restored. We thank you for this work of grace. We thank you that reconciliation with you and with others is possible because of you. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with us? And let's receive this bread and this cup. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, 
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes, he will return again. Let's receive the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Take a moment to respond. We don't want to just take this opportunity to receive communion and not have an opportunity to, res- to respond and receive that grace and healing. Because of his sacrifice, we have freedom and forgiveness of sin. So we're just saying, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you everything's a mess, everything's in trouble, we remember that Jesus has made a way forward. God has provided a redemptive plan and a way for us to get back on track. It's as close as the mention of his name. When we call out the name of Jesus, say, Jesus, forgive me. Help me. Help me in this moment of temptation. Let's not wait until the temptation comes and we've already given in. But at that moment of temptation, may God's Holy Spirit sensitize us to his voice enough that we recognize, we recognize the temptation and we say, I'm not taking the bait. I'm not going to take the bait because God's plan for me is better. And we begin to repattern and relearn a new way of living under the grace of God and the blessing. And that will be a wonderful thing. I hope you enjoy your day, enjoy your week, walk in the freedom and grace of Jesus. And let's say this benediction together before we go. Let's pray this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.